So John 4, 27 to 38, the brilliance of explaining what is yet to be understood. But first, we got to back up a little bit. We, we did this last week. We're going to do it next week also, if the Lord permits. So last week, we started with John chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to read those first few verses. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, there's a couple of things here we need to remember. He was heading to Galilee. He stopped in Samaria because he had to go through there. And we saw the humanity of Jesus where he was thirsty. He needed rest. We saw the deity of Jesus as he responded to the woman at the well in a very powerful way. But before we get to that, I want to mention again, because it keeps repeating as we're going through just the very beginning of John, we keep hearing about baptism a lot. I recently had an interaction with an individual, and it was uh, enlightening. This particular individual made me aware of something that is, is one of those things you don't get to read in a book. <clears throat> For instance, Bill Hybel, some of you know who he is. He's the guy that kind of came up with the phrase, seeker-friendly churches. Uh, he uh, wrote a couple of books that really popularized that idea of seeker-friendly churches. And many churches overdid it and kind of forgot what their purpose was supposed to be. And even Bill Hybels got caught up in, at least it was publicized as a scandal. I don't know the facts, but what I do know is that he grew a mega church that impacted the world. I mean, later you hear of Rick Warren, a Southern Baptist preacher who was highly influenced by Bill Hybels, and many others. But at Bill Hybels Church outside of Chicago in a suburb, what you never heard, you heard all about these church growth ideas in his books. What you never heard was what I got to hear when I got to hear him speak personally at a North American Christian convention. And he mentioned, and I, I know I forgot the figure, I don't remember the figure, but he was standing there talking to I think a former or current NFL football player. And Bill Hybels was looking out over the land and he was telling him, I envision a building like this. And, and the NFL football player or former NFL football player, player chimed in and said, I got half that right now. And it was millions. So, the, so all of a sudden he has a million, millions and millions of dollars he wants to spend and somebody right next to him said, I'll write half, a check for half that. Very few churches have that ability. That's why it's not in the books about how to build a church. Get an NFL player or a sports player and have them write half the check. That's not in there. It's left out. And I learned something this week, when I, and I'll get to that in a little bit. But I learned something this week, and that's what I'll get to is the details. But one of the things... I learned was I didn't know a piece of a particular book written by um, a very respected graduate of Boise Bible College, probably the most known. And there was a piece I didn't know because I got to talk to somebody directly connected to what was going on there. 
But this particular individual is not from any independent Christian church or Church of Christ or Disciples of Christ. He's actually got a, a background in a, in a denomination. And because of that background in the denomination and what he witnessed in the growth, at one point it was the fastest growing church in the United States, I think for two years running, very close to here. And while this was happening, everybody was marveling, like, how is this happening? So books were written on how to do it. I read the books, used the materials, good stuff, used it here. But, and I'll get to how I learned that piece in, in a little bit, but one thing that was amazing to me is this guy focused in on me as soon as he learned that I might be connected to a restoration-type church. Oh, okay, so baptism's a really big deal to you. I didn't say it, he said it. And then he started letting me know how it was not a big deal to him. Uh, he, he mentioned that in the first church, uh, the, they, they, when they couldn't get to water, they, they created a new way to do it. And, and when he was meaning, uh, he said early church, I should say. That means after the Bible was inspired, somebody came up with a different way to do baptism. And so he was encouraging me to just relax and lighten up and let it do whatever. And no, I'm sorry. I'm going to do it this way. That's just the way it's going to be. I will fail at times and not get it right, but I, my goal is to follow this book. And when it comes to baptism, it keeps coming up in our text over and over again, and I wouldn't be doing justice if we didn't talk about it. It's not because I, it's a big deal to me. It's because it's a big deal to God. So that's the answer. I want to give it the same treatment that, that God gives it in Scripture. No more, no less. So I will be speaking to the elders soon about something that just came up. There appears to be an interest in some of the kids in the church to talk about baptism. So we'll figure out some kind of class. Apparently there's a need. So we'll talk about that. And we'll involve parents because every time in the Bible that a kid's mentioned being baptized, it's the whole family, which means parents are involved. We're not going to disconnect that from the parents. I think church camp might have had something to do with the interest from the kids. So in this, Jesus had to, and heading to Galilee, stopped at Samaria. As he had heard, people were saying, he's getting more disciples. He's baptizing. Well, he's not really baptizing. It's, it's his disciples. But hey, he's got a bigger following than John. So he's like, okay. So he decides to move on, but trying to make sure the timing of God works out. And he stops off in Samaria, and he has this wonderful conversation, wonderful conversation with a woman who he's not supposed to be talking to. You're not supposed to talk to Samaritans. You've got to go through a ritualistic cleansing if you talk to a Samaritan. And you've got to do the same thing even if you talk to your own wife or daughter where other people can hear it. So, and even if you do it in privately. But here you go. And then we pick up after he gives this great, this is what he says at the very end of their conversation. We'll read the next part. You'll go ahead and click that. John chapter 4, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Remember that from last week? He was referring to himself as deity. He said, I am. Whoa. Yahweh, that's the word. That's a big, big deal. 
Now, I wanted to give you that because of the very next verse. Look at verse 27. Just then, so this is like a, a movie and it's a climactic moment. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Jesus had already set a precedent that he's doing things differently. He's already grabbed people's attention, and his disciples went to get groceries. Remember, that's what they, they went to go get food. So they came back with food, and as they come back, they see that he's talking not only to a Samaritan, not supposed to do that, but a woman, and none of them questioned him. Okay, okay, this is something new. Not used to this, but hey. So, and notice, I want you to notice the way this plays out, the way John writes, and it's a beautiful way of writing. It's a good way to teach if you're ever in a position where you can teach. If you can do it much like you see it happen to you, if you watch a television program or a movie, there's usually stories and sub-stories, and they're intertwining, and you connect the dots, and this is the way Jesus communicated. This is the way God inspired Scripture to be written, and it's the way John wrote it down. So he's, he does these things where he has a story and then a sub-story, and then you're supposed to connect the dots. And what happens in a situation like this is somebody could walk in to a middle, the middle of a television program after a few breaks, commercial breaks, then it picks back up, and they, they still get the gist and, you know, that's, that's an interesting design, but God's been doing this a long time. It's all the way through the Bible. And it's very, very, if you, if you can let yourself with an open mind, open it up and read it, you'll see that's the way he inspires Scripture to be written. And especially in John, you can see this play out. So there's an immediate thing. Just then, as Jesus told her, I am, they heard that. So we're reading on. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So notice again, it's, simple, it's, it's like the story and the sub-stories are happening. So we see that just then the disciples came up on that. Okay. But they didn't question. They heard him say, I am he. Well, he is. They don't question. He's, he's, gonna, he's telling a Samaritan woman who he is. She, in a, in a type of a haste, you can imagine the energy. She's got enthusiasm because she goes back and tells people, you're not going to believe this. I think I met the one. That's what the Christ is, you know, the anointed one. He said, I am. She knows, and she's going back and saying, could he be? So they're eagerly bouncing off of that enthusiasm. They're going to go see for themselves. I guarantee you she did not go back and say, well, incidentally, I met a guy who, who thinks he's God. That's not what she did. She's enthusiastically doing this. You have, you have to read between the lines because it's not written that she enthusiastically did this. If you read ahead, you learn more. But you can see in this text... They went out of the town and were coming to him. Her words led them to Jesus. And that's what John was inspired to write so that you would see that. Notice the story does the sub-stories and stories. 
Here we go. Meanwhile, here we go. It's just like, like I said. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, which means teacher, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? It's interesting. They don't get it. But the reality is, if you were there with them at the time, you went away to get food. Jesus stopped because he was tired, needed nourishment, asked for water. He needs food too. And yet, if you were there with the disciples, or if you were in replace, uh, replacement to the disciples, you too would not get it. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He needs food. Jesus says something purposely that they don't get. This is what he does. This is the nature of God. Sometimes it is brilliant to tell us things we're not going to get at the moment. Later, it'll come back to us and we'll go, that's what he was talking about. And you can see the wisdom, the brilliance of God. And they're going to see this in Jesus because he says stuff like this. At a time where you know he's hungry, he needs the physical food, but he, he decides to make this a teaching moment. He's not saying, that physical food, I don't need. But he's telling them about something more important. And what he's talking about is how dedicated he is to his Father's will. It's more important to him than anything else. And you see this play out when he teaches us how to pray and when he demonstrates how to pray in the garden. Your will be done. That's the way it happens. We'll continue with verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. See, he's focused on the word of God. This is not necessarily new to us. Even though we wouldn't have got it, we can start connecting the dots now because we have all of Scripture we can look at, and the disciples then could not do that. But if you'll look in Matthew chapter 4, starting with verse 1, you'll see a connection. This is his temptation that happened before. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So right off the bat, Jesus is tempted. Just before he begins his ministry, just before all that happens, he, go, he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and it says he's hungry, which means he drank. Because if you don't eat or drink for 40 days, hunger is not what comes to mind. It would be thirst. Fasting is you drink, drink water, don't drink soda. I know a man who did that. He drank soda while fasting and ended up in the hospital. Don't do that. Eats holes in things. So he drank water. He is hungry. After 40 days and 40 nights, would you be hungry if all you did was drink water? You would be hungry. And if the devil came to you and you were capable of turning bricks or stones or whatever into food, if you could turn a stone that looks like a roll, 
I mean, some do. You've seen some round stones and you paint it right, that, that's a roll. If you look at that and you put in, if the devil puts in your head, that could be a fresh roll right there because you can do that. Would you be tempted? Jesus was tempted. Probably his stomach made a noise right about then. That sounds good. Fresh bread when you're hungry is very appealing. He could probably smell it. And we know from history, when God makes bread, people love it. Think about the manna. So, oh, you know. And think about when Jesus later feeds the 5,000. People love that bread that came from God. So Jesus not only can make that into a roll, he can make it in probably the best. If you can imagine the best you've had, it's better. He could do that. He's tempted. He thought about it. I could do that. But he responded with Scripture. And, it, and it's an emphasis on our focus should not be on doing what we want, what our desires are, but what the Father wants. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We should try to do the will of God above all our own selfish desires. It works out better that way. And Jesus planted that seed early on so that we could have it inspired in Matthew. And we can see, even if you're hungry, don't sin. Think about what would please the Lord. Because if you're like me, sometimes I think when it comes to eating, it may not be pleasing to the Lord. But it applies everywhere, not just to food. And the scripture comes out of the Old Testament, and it behooves us to look at that this morning. Deuteronomy, you'll see it come up behind me, Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting with verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's the scripture Jesus is quoting. Isn't it fascinating? It's connected there in so many different ways. And so maybe things start churning in your mind. Maybe, maybe just kind of following this out, you see the substory and the substory, and then now there's more substories. This is the inspiration of God. Your, your wheels start churning and you start applying it in your own life. It's, you, I don't know how many of you have noticed this, but you read through the Bible, you can read through the same thing you've read many times before, and suddenly a light bulb goes off like it hasn't before. It's not because Scripture changes. It's because the application is revealed. Because you learned something before. You've heard it before. And now you get it. Just like the disciples. They're not getting this. What's he talking about? Somebody bring him food? I didn't see anybody bring him food. How's he not, how's he not hungry? He's hungry. He's more concerned with the will of God. And he wants them to understand that. Okay, this is, this is good stuff. I love how God puts this all together for us. So we'll pick up back in our text in verse 36, John 4, 36. I'm sorry, 35. Oh, this is key, by the way. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. 
Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Now, if you're a seasoned Christian, you've been doing this a long time, you might read this and go, got no issues, I'm fine, I'm good. Because you've been there, you've studied it, you, you, you got this. But not all of us have. So what I would, I want to talk about a couple of things. Uh, by the way, scholars for ever since scripture has been in print have been talking about verse 35 and trying to figure out, is this a proverb? And to this day, it's not been found as a proverb anywhere outside of the Bible or in the Bible. It seems like a question that Jesus is simply asking, Are you not, do you not say this when this happens? Do you not realize the harvest in four months is coming? So there's an anticipation that they would say, yeah. This is not something we look for in Scripture to find a proverb, as scholars have tried. This is just a question he's expecting them to automatically think in their minds, yes, we know, the harvest, four months, we all know this. And then he says, look, because he knows they're not getting what he's saying. But some of us are not getting what he's saying. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. In, in other words, he's telling them, you've got to please the Father. He's, got, he's telling them, I need to focus on what the Father wants right now, not eating food. He still does need food. Because he knows something they don't. We'll get to that text next week. <clears throat> But what he's saying to them is you don't even see. God's got something ready for you. And then verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. And, and still, as I read that, some of us are not connecting the dots, and that's okay because God's going to give us an opportunity to do that this morning, and I hope it works for you. But first, we've got to talk about something that you might not have heard before. You see that? Don't say it out loud. Just look at it. <laughs> sorry. If there's anybody in the parking lot listening or if somebody's listening to this online later, sorry, you don't even know what they're looking at. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen a bun dance on the table? <laughs> oh, you read that differently? You read that differently. Okay, so <laughs> it's, it looks like it could say abundance on the table. That's what you thought. But I said abundance on the table. That's what I thought. It could be either, right? But the problem is it's all run together. So let me clue you in on the way the entire Bible was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. So in this part of the Bible, it's written in Greek, Koine Greek to be particular. This is called minuscule. That's what this means when everything is like this. Let me, I'm going to give you some more before I talk about the minuscule. For one thing, oh, I should give you a heads up. Verse 35 that we read before, verse 35 and verse 36, there's a big controversy with that. And I, I need to show you this stuff so we can kind of look at it more 
with open minds and maybe as a theologian and a scholar should. So I want to tell you when chapters were added to the Bible, you'll see that pop up behind me. It was sometime before 1228. We know this because the guy who did it is Stephen Langton. Now, there is another guy that's later in the 1240s that also did it, but it's been credited to Stephen Langton, Archbishop of Canterbury, of dividing the Bible into chapters. It makes it a little easier. You know, we can, we can get turned to places. And when verses were added, was a little bit later, you'll see that pop up behind me, verses were added in 1551 by Robert Estienne, or if you want a Latinized name they gave him in Latin, Stephanus. He was, uh, you see that word, Parisian? That means he's from Paris. Just a fancy way of saying it. So that's like calling Target, Target. Anyway, he's from Paris. He was a book printer. And the story that goes with this is kind of cool. He traveled by horseback. So the rumor began when it came out that he divided all these chapters into verses. The rumor began that he did this while riding a horse because everybody always saw him riding a horse. Like, when does he print these books? He's always on a horse. So they, they presumed that he did it while he was on the back of a horse. No, he didn't. He probably did it while he was stopping off at little places to stay for the night. But he was a busy guy, always traveling by horseback. And supposedly this particular thing that he did, he divided all, after they were divided in chapters, he divided them into verses to make it easier for the people to be able to, to see. Now, I don't have to throw it out there and ask a question and expect an answer. I think we all know. If you know this guy, Robert Estien is a horseback book publisher. He is not a theologian. I mean, he might have loved God and the Bible, probably. But he is certainly not an expert in knowing where the verses should be divided. So, the, so we have one person divided into chapters, and then one person divided into verses long after it was inspired. Now I want to talk to you about before chapters and verses. Before that, what it looked like was like this abundance on the table or abundance on the table. There were no chapters. There were no verses. There were no breaks, no, no, no pauses in between the words, just ran together. There were no capital letters, and there was no punctuation. So remember the time when Jesus unrolled the scroll and read it amongst the scholars and said, today this is fulfilled amongst you? That's impressive. It would be impressive if any of us could open up our Bible and turn to a passage without chapters and verses or punctuation or spaces or capital letters. That's amazing. Not only do you have to know God's Word, you have to know it intimately to even know where the breaks should be. <clears throat> so knowing all of this, we know that all those things I said that weren't there were added by man long after it was inspired. Okay, so given that, I want to go back to those controversial two verses 
John chapter 4, verse 35 and verse 36. This controversy is this, and it's a big one, and it has been ever since there's been verses. It's where does the word already go? And I can tell you that of the scholars I read that are actually seem to be dedicated to the word of God and not coming up with new ways, most believe already belongs with verse 35. You'll see it move. That changes the meaning. And it, and it actually goes with what's being said. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest already. That changes things. There is an urgency. And it goes along with everything else that is said. And then he says, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Now, this is important to know, so we'll go ahead and talk about it right now. Um, let me see. I don't want to get ahead of myself here, Jim. I don't want to get ahead of you either. Let's just, I'll, I'll go ahead and give you a, a commentary. Um, yeah. Dr. Paul Thurman Butler. The spiritual impact of this verse, 35, and he is one that agrees also that already should be in verse 35, is apparent when we remember Jesus' constant reminder to the disciples of the overabundance of harvest and pathetic lack of laborers. Near the end of his second year of ministry, Jesus was moved with compassion for the multitudes because they were distressed and scattered as sheep, not having a shepherd. There, as he traveled amongst, among the cities and villages of Galilee, he said to the disciples, you want to see what he's talking about? We'll do that. He said to the disciples this. We're back in Matthew. Now we're in chapter 9, I believe. Can you go to that, Jim? Oh, before we go there. <laughs> That's why he didn't go there, because he's got something different in front of him. Dr. Paul Thurman Butler was a great mentor of mine. He did not attend this college, but this college, as I did attend there, they did use his works and respected him much, and I found that to be intriguing. We support Boise Bible College, and we should. It's, a, it's the most solid college around us that teaches the Bible. There is another one in Portland, and I asked elders' permission for this, there's some new news I wanted to share with you today, because if you like to study, and if it's fun to go through the Bible and like, whoa, look at that, and you, and you allow some trusted people to teach you, if you would like, there's an opportunity at Northwest College of the Bible. It just came to my email this week. I'm grateful that they gave me permission to share with you, because if you would like to take Bible college courses... Uh, material is right outside the door here. That's okay. I just lost some of you. Some of you are thinking, I can't do that. I can't go to Portland. I can't afford it, all that kind of stuff. Um, the material that's out there will tell you it's $15 a course. It's all available on Zoom in the evenings. And uh, you can walk away with a, a Bible college. You might take one course. You might Finish your degree, get another one, whatever you want to do, I highly recommend. It's not Boise Bible College, but there 
I've known students that have gone to Northwest College of the Bible and then move on to Boise Bible College. It's good stuff. So if you have questions, uh, the paper that's right out there by the Tough Guy Jesus poster, uh, grab a piece of paper. It probably has all the answers. I believe August 22nd is the orientation that you do on Zoom, and then you go from there. So now let's go to that next slide, Jim. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers laborers into his harvest. That's that reference. And it would definitely, I would be failing God and you if I didn't go ahead and look at another passage in Matthew that brings this to that, that we automatically should go to. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 and following. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, where Jesus is with the woman, uh, or he's heading to, uh, to uh, where he stopped at the woman at the well in Samaria, he's heading to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I give this to you because I need to say something to you. Stop with the excuses. And the reason why I say that, oh, go ahead and underline this. There, there's a line. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Stop with the excuses is the next thing I'm supposed to say. Sorry. Is that right? No. Stay where you are. I'm going to say stop with the excuses in a little bit. <laughs> and I may have Jim go back, too, because I, uh, I might need to do that. But when it says go, therefore, and make disciples... Here's a better wording following the Greek actual words. So, you are going to make disciples. Jesus is saying, I'm the boss of you and everything and everyone. So, you're going to make disciples. Now, let's go to the next slide. All right. John chapter 4, verse 37. And we'll read verse 38. That'll be the end of our text today. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now, I'm not going to have Jim go back. What I'll have you do is you go back because the light bulb might start clicking in your head in just a minute. I'll go ahead and say, stop with the excuses. Because here is what people do with this passage. You see, 
He says, for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. That's what people do. When a preacher says something like Jesus says, you're going to make disciples. People like to come up with these excuses. They like to say, well, you know, some plant seeds and some reap the harvest. And so they, they kind of excuse themselves. I don't need to lead anybody to Christ. I just kind of kind of get them led. And then other people do the rest. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm not a people person. I'm not good with scripture. I'm not that way. Guess what, Christian? Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So you're going to make disciples. You don't get to play games with scripture. Yes, Jesus says, for here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. This is when the light bulb should go off when he was speaking earlier and it's like hard to get. It's hard to get that both rejoice. Think of it this way. You have an opportunity sometimes as you interact with other people here in the lobby, in the parking lot, in the other building, and hit this room. You might have interactions when we have a fellowship dinner. You might have interactions in your home, in your backyard, at the park at the store, at work, at school, wherever it may be, you have these interactions. And you just might come across somebody who already knows a little bit about God, Jesus, and the Bible. But they're going through some struggles in life at that moment. And they're struggling because they are not close to Jesus. Maybe they've never been close to Jesus. And that means they, they've never had a relationship. They've heard about him. They know about the Bible. They have a little bit of trust in that because trustworthy people had talked to them about it. Their, their parents or maybe they went to Sunday school when they were younger. Maybe they went to church camp. Maybe they interacted with us in one of these events I was talking about or maybe at the store or school or with family or at the park or whatever. They interacted uh, with somebody that planted seeds, but now they're in front of you and you have the opportunity to say to them, have you, have you talked to the Lord about this? Jesus can help you through this. Do you know him? You have that opportunity. And sometimes God has that door wide open right in front of you and, and you just don't see it. You know? It's, it's much like the way we respond sometimes when we get a headache. There are different ways that we respond when we get a headache. Some of us in this room get headaches. Need my coffee. Need my Excedrin, need my Tylenol, need my ibuprofen, need my Aleve, need my nap. Whatever it is, I need this. What you need is to stop for a moment and pray to God And before you take the pill, before you take the nap, before you try to do something physical, why not take it to the Lord? I mean, if He's your Lord, if you are His servant and He's number one in your life, like Jesus tried to teach us, his attitude towards his father, I, you know, I need food, physical food, but you know what? There's a priority here. If you just look up, it's right there. Maybe these times when we do these different remedies, they're, they're good. We got to do the remedies. That's fine. But why not take it before the Lord first? Could he make the headache go away before you take the pill or before you take the nap? He could. Could he make the headache go away with those things? He could. But did you talk to him about it? See, here's what happens. Is we have opportunities right in front of us. And somebody else has planted the seeds. The harvest is ripe. 
And if you can finish what somebody started, both rejoice. See, we'll start churning you back up to that scripture we read earlier. That's what he was talking about. Maybe you're one that will be planting the seeds. If you're a parent, you're more than likely the one that's planting the seeds and somebody else has to finally talk to your child and get some sense knocked into their heads because they don't listen to parents when they get so old. They know everything, you know. But it, may, it might be the other way around. It might be somebody else says something and a parent finally has the door open because somebody else planted a seed. Now the parent can say what they've been longing to say. Let me introduce you to the one that I talk to all the time about you. Then both rejoice in that situation too. So you've got the, the, the person that plants the seed and the person that reaps the harvest. But you Christians don't get to pick which one. You need to look and pay attention to what's in front of you. Yes, you might be hungry. Yes, you might need to do this or that. But the priority is the will of God. Whatever else is going on, make that your priority. God can bless it. And everybody connected to that will rejoice, including the Father. Then you can take care of those physical desires that you might not even need. <laughs> Look what God did. He had a story, substory, more substories, and connects it all back around. That's the way he does it. And here you are coming into church on a Sunday morning, and the parking lot is definitely not as full as it was last week, neither are the seats. But God has something for you. So here's the real life application. <clears throat> Some things are yet to be understood. Some of us in this room still might not be connecting. Some of the things we talked about in this very scripture, some of the things we read later, light bulbs will go off. But for now, hopefully these did. First of all, enthusiasm can breed enthusiasm. Like I said, the lady didn't go back and say, well, I met a guy and he, he thinks he's God. She didn't do that. She was enthusiastically a believer in who he claimed he was. And so she told him, could he be the Christ? And the way she said it, it was in such a way that people were drawn to Jesus. Good for her. Second, our passions can be Contagious. It was in this situation. I mean, she didn't notice what wasn't said. I was so wrapped up in what he said to me that I went off and left my cup. She didn't even bring it up. It's not that important. What, she, what is she passionate about? I think I met the I am, the anointed one. Could be him. You might want to go see Number three, some plant seeds, some reap the harvest. You don't get to pick what you're going to do. It's my job is just planting seeds, or my job is just reaping the harvest. No, it's a, it's a circumstance that unfolds right before you. God may have you planting seeds over here, and he may have you reaping a harvest over here, but look up and pay attention. Don't focus so much on the physical. we got to deal with the physical. But there is a spiritual realm he wants us to pay attention to. So pay attention. 
Sometimes you see people's behaviors are not exactly the way they should be. Have you ever paused for a moment and just backed up and thought to yourself, I wonder what's going on in that person's life? It can change how you interact with them. And maybe you need to plant some seeds, or maybe what you do will lead them to Christ. Number four, some make excuses, some live for Jesus. And that's really what it comes down to. If you're going to make excuses of why you're not going to lead somebody to Christ, you're not living for the Lord. We must all be about doing what Jesus said his disciples will be doing. He's the authority, and he says you're going to make disciples. And number five, Supreme Jesus expects each of us to produce disciples. So when I ask those questions that are uncomfortable, like can you name the five people on your hand right now, can you list them, that you are currently discipling? I do that on purpose because Jesus did this kind of thing with his disciples where he's telling them, even though they're doing a good thing, they got food for him. That's not a bad thing. But a story is unfolding right in front of them. They saw part of it and they're about to see a bigger part. We'll pick up with that next week. But I should tell you, there is a story unfolding right in front of you. You might want to look up beyond the surface and see what God has for you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for involving us in your plan. Thank you for loving us so much that you had somebody plant a seed in us and somebody reap a harvest and leading us all the way to you. God, we thank you so much for that. And as we pray right now, it's very humbling to think that the creator of the universe would pause for a moment and listen to us, but you do. God, as we've tried to listen to you this morning and your word, we want to do better at following it. We want to to see what you have before us, and we want to take the action that pleases you, because you are our Lord. So God, show us embolden us, give us what it takes, help us to step out of our comfort zone to please you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.